The lesson on which our teaching for today is based comes from the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And here we read, In my former book, Theophilus, so if you don't know, the author of the book of Acts is a guy named Luke. Okay, And he writes, uh, back in those days, uh, books could only be so long. In fact, they were scrolls, not books. They could go, only go to a max of about 32 to 35 feet. You couldn't just keep writing and the scroll gets bigger and bigger and bigger and you can't even move it. So they wrote books up to about that extent. And what Luke does, Luke is a medical doctor. And he's writing to this guy named Theophilus. And he writes a two-volume set. One is the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the second one is what happens after Jesus resurrects from the grave, makes his appearances and ascends into heaven. Luke says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions to the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was, in fact, alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at that time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after Jesus said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men, angels here, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you just stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Here ends our lesson. And we're going to divide the teaching today into two real basic points, okay? The first point is we're going to look at what exactly is the ascension and the meaning of the ascension. The second point is how does that then affect us? Specifically, how does the ascension then affect our witness in life? First of all, what's the ascension? Um, I, I mentioned at the top of the service that historically, Christian churches, the weeks after Easter, have looked at the story of Acts. Acts is the book that tells the story of the early Christian church. And so it's natural that believers, after the resurrection, would say, what did the church do then? And now, after we celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday, What should the church be doing now? It's also traditional for Christian churches uh, historically to celebrate the event called the Ascension 40 days after Easter. Why 40 days after Easter? That's because the Bible tells us Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days after Easter. The only problem with celebrating the Ascension 40 days after Easter means that we will always wind up celebrating the Ascension on a Thursday. A Thursday evening. From a ministerial perspective, it's sometimes kind of hard to get a lot of Christians together on Thursday evenings for whatever reasons. And yet, you know, the Christian church still holds some celebrations like this. Our church body 
uh, in our local ministry tends to get together a bunch of different churches to hold like a joint ascension service. But, uh, you, you know, some of you who grew up going to Lutheran elementary schools might remember the kids singing at those joint ascension services and all that. My concern is not whether or not you go to ascension services or have been to ascension services or, or, or whatever else. Here's my concern. If 40 days after Easter on a Thursday evening on a not awesomely attended service is the only time that we ever talk about the ascension of Jesus, then the vast majority of the Christian church never understands or hears about its mission and purpose for life. Okay? If the only time we ever talk about the ascension of Jesus Christ is 40 days after Easter on a Thursday evening, the vast majority of Christians never actually end up hearing about their mission and purpose for life. And actually, uh, after doing ministry for about 10 years with a lot of young adults, that's exactly what I think part of the weak spot is for a lot of young people. Not knowing what is my mission and what is my purpose in life here and now. See, I know a lot of Christians who can sort of regurgitate to me what the basics of the gospel are. And by that, I mean a lot of young Christians can tell me, uh, God loves me, God forgives me, God sent his son into the world, Jesus, to come and die for me, and that means that when I die, I get to go to heaven. And I will turn to them and say, yes, that's great, that's correct, and now what? You're not in heaven yet. What are you doing now? What, what are we supposed to do now? And they'll look at me like I'm speaking a different language. They're looking at me like I'm asking a question that they've never even thought about before. In other words, they can tell me, yes, when I die, I go to heaven, but what is my purpose and what is my mission here and now? And by and large, what a lot of young Christians are doing is they're looking around at the rest of the world and say, well, what are you guys doing? And then they think, okay, let's adopt that value system. And so the, the, the vast majority of young adult Christians that I talk to, what are their life goals? Well, I want to, have a, uh, I want to marry a great person I want to have a beautiful family. I want to have a successful career. I don't need to be rich, but I want to have enough money to, in order to not have to worry about money. Uh, I want to follow the deepest desires of my heart, and by and large, in general, I want to be comfortable. Tell me how those life goals are in any way, shape, or form indistinguishable uh, distinguishable from the secular, non-believing world that surrounds us. They're identical. Uh, one of the best Christian researchers of the past 20 years is a guy by the name of Christian Smith. He's a sociology professor at Notre Dame. And uh, about 15 years ago, he coined a term that uh, has been kind of entered into the Christian vocab, and I've read it in a number of books. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. And what he basically is saying is a lot of young adult Christians today kind of know the basics of the gospel, but their gospel has changed a little bit. They're not exactly following or believing the orthodox gospel of the past 2,000 years. Instead, what they primarily believe about God is that God created me, God loves me, in general, good people go to heaven, and now my life pursuit, the central goal of my life here on earth is to be happy and feel good about myself. The average young adult Christian will absolutely agree with that, question, that statement. The life goal, what's my life goal? Well, I want to be happy and I want to feel good about myself. I've been reading a bunch of, in a, in a preparing for a series on the early Christian church, I've been reading a bunch of really good books on the story of the early Christian church. Uh, one by Justo Gonzalez called The Story of Christianity. Another by Rodney Stark, a historian called The Rise of Christianity. One called Pagan Christianity by Frank Viola. And a New York Times bestseller right now that's great called The Benedict Option by Rod Dreher. Interestingly, all the, the best books on the early Christian church 
are essentially the common thread between all of them right now. They're asking two basic questions. First question is, how on earth is it that the Christian church, the early Christian church, with seemingly no economic, social, uh, or, or uh, political clout, facing opposition, facing persecution and oppression from the Roman Empire, how on earth does that little movement of 120 people get off the ground to such an extent that within 200 years' time it becomes the predominant religion and predominant belief system of the Roman Empire. How does that happen? Seems like there might be some kind of divine power attached to it. But if that's the case, if there is a divine power attached to this gospel of Jesus Christ, why on earth is it that we don't see the same kinds of revolutions and cultural changes happening in 21st century Western Christianity? It's not that stuff like that has never happened before. It happened in the early church. It also happened, let me give you another, another example. Uh, in 18th century Europe, uh, in 18th century Europe, you're thinking about the time of the Industrial Revolution, and one of the things that that brought about was a tremendous amount of social inequality between the rich and the poor. And if you look from spot to spot, the different uh, countries, for instance, handled it very differently. So, for instance, France handled the social inequality by dealing with it by way of a bloody revolution. England didn't have a bloody revolution. And what most historians will concede today is one of the reasons they didn't have a, a bloody revolution to bring about social changes is because they had something else. Historians will call it a great awakening. In fact, most will say that in the course of the, the 1700s, England and the British Empire at large had two great awakenings, one in the 1730s and 40s and one at the end part of that century. It caused people to start thinking differently. For instance, it caused rich people to start thinking differently and they became more generous. And it caused poor people to start thinking differently and they somehow had this new thinking that led them to be more self-disciplined. Literacy rates increased. Child labor laws were enacted. Slavery in the British Empire was abolished. How did that come about? There's a fascinating story there. Uh, have you ever heard of William Wilberforce before? William Wilberforce was an English politician who converted to Christianity in 1785 and it changed his politics. All of a sudden, he started to think, well, if according to the Bible, God has imbued every single human being with value and Jesus, who redeemed every life, died for the sins of every person, if he deems every single human being valuable, maybe every single human being is equally valuable. And maybe our politics could even reflect that. And so he works relentlessly for 20 years and sure enough, in 1807, you get the Slave Trade Act of 1807 by which slavery becomes abolished in the British Empire. True spiritual awakening always, always, always brings about cultural change and social impact. Well, let me bring you back to the question earlier. If that's the case, why is it that we don't see those same kind of cultural changes and, and social impact being coming through church reformation here in the, the modern Western world? Why is it that seemingly the society looks at the church today as, at best, not particularly influential, uh, at worst, arguably just ineffective in the social sector? What that it has to mean, to some extent, that the Christian church, to some extent, has lost its mission. Uh, now, what on earth does this have to do with ascension? I thought we were talking about ascension today. It has everything to do with the story of ascension. Why? Be well, Look, if I was asking the average Christian today, tell me the essential events in the narrative of Christianity. 
Think for, think for yourself for a second, what do you think these central events in Christianity are, the narrative of Christianity? My guess is that most Christians would say, well, you can't tell the story of Christianity without teaching about uh, Jesus' birth, Christmas, uh, Jesus' death, Good Friday, Jesus' resurrection from the grave, Easter Sunday, and then they might stop there. And that might be enough to teach about the full and free forgiveness of all of our sins. That might be enough to teach us about the gift of salvation to us. But let's go back to the question earlier. What about the what now? I don't think you can teach the what now of the Christian faith unless you actually get to Ascension and Pentecost. Why? Well, Ascension and Pentecost are essentially the moments in the Christian story where Jesus takes everything that he's ever done and earned, his, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, all of it, his salvation, the reconciliation, the restoration, and he takes the keys and he hands the keys to the kingdom over to his people and he says, this, this is your mission. This is your purpose in life. This is what I want you to do. I'm handing over the responsibility and I'm giving you the power. See, he hands over the responsibility at the ascension. How do I know that? Because he left. He says, I want you to do this. And he says, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to give you every resource necessary to carry out this ministry, which 10 days later, he sends his spirit. That's your mission. That's your purpose. See, um, I think one of the great temptations of modern Christianity in the West is the temptation towards inactivity and unproductivity. Now, that's a temptation for us. It's not a unique temptation for us. The apostles actually faced the same temptation at the end of our lesson today. Verses 10 and 11, we read, the apostles were looking intently up into the sky as Jesus was going when suddenly two men, these angels, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here looking into the sky? Why are you guys just standing there? You know, uh, I, don't, I don't know if the, the angels are being critical here. I think they're just giving them a gentle encouragement in the right direction. But what are they saying? Jesus called you not to be stargazers. He called you to be doers. After all, it's called the book of Acts, right? Not the book of sits or the book of waits. It's the Acts of the Apostles, not the hanging out of the apostles. In fact, Luke actually begins this book. It's one of those interesting things as a pastor, sometimes you get the luxury of staring at a text and praying your way through it for like 20 hours over the course of the week and eventually certain things start to, to rise up before you and you say, I never saw that before. One thing I never saw this before until I prepped this week for this text uh, is how Luke opens this text. Again, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus seemingly is this cultured, educated, prob probably wealthy, uh, skeptic or new Christian convert that's asking about all of the details concerning the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ and what happened after that. And what he says to Theophilus is this. The very beginning of, of the book, he says, in my former book, Theophilus, the former book is the Gospel of Luke, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. Read that carefully. Why on earth does he say, I told you in my former book about what Jesus began to teach and do? You see, seemingly, the way you'd think you'd write it is in my last book, I told you about everything that Jesus did and taught and in this next book, I'm going to tell you about everything that the Christian church did and taught. That's not what he says. 
He says, in my last book, I told you about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the insinuation? This book is about everything that Jesus Christ continues to do and teach. Well, how on earth is Jesus doing it and teaching it because he's up there in heaven physically? He's doing it and he's teaching it through us. That's your purpose. Jesus wants to continue to do stuff and to teach stuff and it's going to have to be through you, which means you and I are going to have to act. Um, man, that's a tremendous privilege. The keys to the kingdom the ownership and operation of the kingdom. It's a great honor. Uh, it's a tremendous responsibility, though. Wow, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of weight and responsibility upon us. We're going to need some help, and fortunately, uh, Jesus promises us he's going to give us some help, too, which I'm already kind of into my second point now. How does the story of the ascension now affect us as the church? I already hinted at this. First of all, you should have some level of expectation when you speak the truths of Jesus into, into the world and into somebody else's life, don't look at it like, well, I'm trying to convince them about something that I've learned or something that I know. No. What does God's word do? God's word speaks the entire universe into existence. God's word is powerful enough to call out dead bodies from the grave. And when God's word comes through your mouth, I get that it sounds like your voice. It is God's voice breathing into somebody else's life, which means you absolutely should have expectation that he's going to bring about results through you. I don't care about your weaknesses. I don't care about your flaws. I don't care about what you don't know. If you know that your Redeemer lives, you have enough knowledge for which God to speak directly through you. Let him do that. Secondly, um, Jesus says, you know what, he says, I want you to be my witnesses out there into the world. Most of you have heard the word martyr before, right? And if I asked you for a definition, you'd say a martyr is somebody who, in general, dies for their faith. Yes and no. It's come to mean that. That's not what it originally meant. When Jesus says, I want you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, the Greek word is the word martis or martires. It's a legal courtroom term that refers to anybody who's serving as a legal witness. Now, it just so happened that when a lot of early Christians witnessed to their faith in a resurrected Savior, they got killed for it. But a martyr is just uh, a witness. But Christians were so convicted by the truth that they had seen that they were willing to die for it. What Jesus literally says here is he says, you, you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The early Christian movement, it exploded into the Roman Empire. Why? Because it had a dynamite gospel that was exploding through bold witnesses. Bold witnesses are kind of rare today. Bold witnesses are kind of rare today. There's a lot of obnoxious witnesses. Obnoxious, you've, you've, you've heard an obnoxious, an obnoxious witness would be somebody who's kind of a religious person who's primarily concerned about controlling your behavior and telling you how to clean up your life. That's not exactly the gospel. It's kind of an obnoxious witness. I think there's also a lot of what I would call uh, soft witnesses. What do I mean by soft witness? Um, if, if you're inclined to share your faith and speak that out into the world, into somebody else's life, one of the things I would challenge you to do is I challenge you to count how many times you say things like, I think, I personally think, and I personally feel like, uh, look, 
I don't doubt that your thoughts are good and I don't doubt that your feelings are genuine. All I'm saying is I'm not quite sure that's witness language. You know what witness language sounds like? I know that my Redeemer lives. That's witness language and a life, a lifestyle that accompanies that as the central truth of your life. That's witness language. Um, what does it look like in the early church? Was like, there uh, was a Greek satirist, a, a uh, real, a critic, hated Christians by the name of Lucian of Samosata. There's almost zero chance that I'm pronouncing that correctly. But it's Lucian of Samosata, I think. Pastor Jeske even helped me out after the first service <laughs> for pronunciation. And I still don't know exactly how to say it. I know what he wrote, though. I know what he wrote. And uh, there's this tremendous quote where he's talking about the early Christian church. And he says, these deluded creatures, he's talking about Christians, these deluded creatures have persuaded themselves that they are immortal and will live forever, which explains the contempt of death and willing self-sacrifice so common among them. It was impressed upon them too by their lawgiver that from the moment they are converted, that they deny the gods of the Greeks, that they worship this crucified sage, and that they live after his law, and they all just live like brothers and sisters. They take his instructions completely upon faith, with the result that they despise all the worldly goods and hold them in common ownership. So any adroit and scrupulous fellow who knows the world has only to get among these simple souls and his fortune is quickly made. See, he's making fun of them. He thinks he's making fun of them. What's he saying about them? He's saying, first of all, these people, they, they, they look at their lives like they're bulletproof. They don't even fear death. They don't seem to fear anything, idiots. They just follow everything that Jesus says. That crucified sage, they don't even second guess it. They don't even question it. They just do it wholeheartedly. Fools. And furthermore, how do they look at the material possessions that they own? They look at it as, this isn't actually mine. This is everybody's, and I just share it with my community. He thinks he's making fun of them. Do people criticize you that way? Do people criticize me that way? You know, James, he, he is, I've never seen him anxious or worried about a single thing his entire life. That guy is always just totally calm and uh, doesn't worry about a single thing. And for that matter, he never rationalizes or second guesses anything that Jesus has ever taught. He just does it wholeheartedly because he's so convinced that uh, uh, somebody who would, who would die for him loves him so much and somebody who can rise from the grave knows what he's talking about and so he just wholeheartedly obeys and follows and he does it joyfully. And for that matter, he never looks at any of his stuff as his stuff, but he just looks at it as what belongs with his people. I wish more people criticized me like that. I, for that matter, if I let my imagination run wild, I wonder what it would look like if you could get a bunch of people moving in that direction at the same time. What if you had like an entire church's worth of people? Like what if a thousand people at St. Marcus uh, were just so incredibly joyful in the power of the resurrection that they didn't fear a single thing. And they were so eager to carry out Christ's will that they didn't second guess, they didn't need to be convinced, they just did it joyfully and wholeheartedly. Uh, what if they looked at none of their material possessions as my own but just shared it with all who were in need? I think the rest of the world would think we were crazy, but I think they would also think we were super beautiful. I think they would look at it and say, hmm, I think that's the way the world is supposed to be. 
Jesus began to do and to teach while he was here on earth and then he ascended into heaven. He wants to continue to do and to teach through us. Now, some of you might be feeling a little bit, I think I am, feeling a little bit guilty about your own witness at this point and thinking my witness hasn't been as dazzling over the course of my life as it maybe perhaps should have been. Um, It's at that moment that you need to remind yourself what we were called to witness to. Uh, if we're called to witness to everything that Jesus did and taught, and he wants to do that through, what exactly did Jesus do and teach while he was here on earth? Jesus' main mission was to primarily teach and do, teach and show the grace of God. What's the grace of God? The grace of God is the undeserved love of God that covers us over the multitude of every single last one of our sins. In other words, Some people walk around with just a ton of guilt, just baggage and guilt and all the time and and that doesn't glorify God, wallowing in your guilt. Your, Your flaws are not reasons to feel guilty because the guilt of your flaws has already been fully paid. Stop just walking around feeling guilty. The flaws that make you feel guilty are not good reasons because the guilt of your flaws is already fully paid. Instead, your flaws are all the more reasons for you to testify to the goodness that God has shown in your life. That's what your flaws are. Look, unlike the other religions of the world, Christianity is not primarily about what we do. It's about what Jesus did for us. All of our salvation, all of our forgiveness, it is finished, he said on the cross. All of that is wrapped up in his blood, not our blood. It's his doing, not our doing. But then the question, what now? What do we do in the here and the now? It's still about Jesus. It's still about what Jesus does and teaches. But it's what he does and he teaches through us. Jesus wants to continue to do and teach through you. He says, you will be my witnesses. Live to be his martyrs. And the kingdom little by little starts to come down. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, today we come humbly before you, uh, but also boldly, because we know we we are your saved children, the the children made by a resurrected Savior. Jesus, what we want to confess is that sometimes our life goals and pursuits uh, have just perfectly mirrored the patterns of this world. We don't want that to be the case. If we are ones who live to exist with relationship to and live in resurrection joy, then our goals and our pursuits are different. We want to be your witnesses. Give us opportunities. Give us your spirit. Give us a bold witness that we may speak about the grace that you have shown to us, your children. In your holy name we pray. Amen.